0: and welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Dr Natalie Gerling. Natalie is a palliative care doctor, a cold water swimmer, and a mother of three young children. Natalie came close to quitting her career in medicine, but she was able to find joy and fulfillment in her profession when working in the field of palliative care. We discuss this often misunderstood medical specialism and how accessing palliative care early on in the course of a non-curable disease can improve not only your quality of life, but also increase life expectancy in some cases. Natalie shares how she enjoys being able to spend proper time with her patients and focusing on their mental well-being is one of the most crucial elements of her role. She reflects on how working in palliative care has taught her to not take a single day for granted, to value things, enjoy people and to not sweat the small stuff. Natalie is a fellow sea swimmer and cold water enthusiast and she explains how cold water immersion is like an intense exercise in mindfulness when you really can only focus on that moment and the tingling sensations all over your body. As well as cold water swimming, we discuss what else she likes to do to try and tip the balance in favour of her mental health. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show and share with a friend who you know will enjoy listening to this uplifting conversation. Welcome, Natalie, to Tipping the Balance. I am very grateful that you've agreed (laughs) to be a guest on the show because I know you're nervous about... (laughs) talking and worrying who's going to listen and everything. You are a palliative care doctor at uh, a hospice and you are a fellow sea swimmer. Yes indeed. Cold water enthusiast. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So yeah, would you like to just give a little bit of an introduction to who you are and maybe how you uh, decided to go into palliative care um yeah sure okay so interestingly my
1: upbringing um we mentioned my my dad was a vicar mm-hmm. and he was a chaplain at the local hospice so um whenever he couldn't get child care, we all know that conundrum mm-hmm. don't we um he would take me along with him when he went to the hospice to visit patients and so from a really tiny age i was going into hospices and i was seeing people who were were poorly and seeing mm. dad chat with them a bit and um, sometimes I would help out a bit, sometimes mm. I, I played the piano for a sing-song. <laughs> um, I had that experience from a really young age and it was always delightful, lovely place that I went to. Mm. So then when I went into medicine, um, I had always been quite keen to do palliative care but initially I thought, well oh, maybe that's, that's a lot um, of people being very very ill, maybe I could do, especially like general practice where it's a part of your job but not the full whack. Mm. So I went into GP training <clears throat> and became a GP and I'll be honest, I wasn't a big fan and mm. um, GPs have an incredibly tough workload, they see a lot of people um, and trying to like see all those people, make sure they're all properly looked after and pick out the couple of people every day who've actually got something seriously amiss mm. in the day I found incredibly stressful mm. and I found that I was taking that worry and anxiety that I'd missed things home with me and mm. I wasn't sleeping and so actually I found that um, general practice just wasn't working for me and so I thought maybe I need to leave medicine, maybe I need to find something else um, and as you do I was flicking through the job adverts and uh, a job came up looking for just a, a generic jobbing doctor at a hospice and I thought wow that was always my original aim um why don't I give it a go yeah so for a while I sort of did did two jobs and I worked part-time as a GP and I worked part-time um at a hospice Mm. and I absolutely loved the hospice work Mm. absolutely loved it it was just a revelation whereas GP felt very rushed and you had to get through the people and lots of um kind of difficulties to negotiate on your own in a very short space of time mm. the hospice work was very much about giving people as much time as you could I mean you were still limited because mm. you still had to see everybody but but nothing like what general practice was like you had much more time to sit and talk to people sit mm. and talk to their relatives and you didn't just have to solely focus in on the the medical bit if that makes sense and mm. um, you still did because ultimately as a doctor your job is still there to tweak the medicines and make sure that physically everything is being done that should be Mm -hmm. but equally you had that time to just talk to people a bit more about where they were at and try and help them not just in that physical way but in their kind of emotional and spiritual way as well and and i really enjoyed that it felt like i was kind of doing more what i had always wished being a doctor was about yeah (laughs) um so ultimately i then quit gp completely and um decided to go into the like the training pathway to become a kind of an official palliative Mm. care specialist Mm. the story gets a bit long and convoluted from there but needless to say (laughs) since then i have worked pretty much solely in palliative care yeah um in this country in a variety of different places so Mm. I've worked in hospices I've worked in hospitals I've worked as part of community teams
0: Mm. and I've worked um, abroad in hospice abroad as well so. And one thing I think would be good to kind of explain is um, what palliative care actually is because I know um, just for example um, my mum is you know in heart failure and she's still at home and you know fairly able to do things but it was mentioned once by um one of her specialist nurses about palliative care and I think as a family we then um that suddenly was quite a heavy weight around that word because I think a lot of people assume that that means that someone's going to die quite soon but that's not actually the case is it no care? I mean when when palliative care starts is 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 one of those kind
1: of slightly tricky questions to be honest you're right society and most people think palliative care means you're in your last days maybe weeks of life Um actually we see it as being much more before that I mean in theory technically um palliative care starts once you have an illness that isn't curable something that's going to mean ultimately that you die Mm -hmm. um so we wouldn't be looking after anybody who is hoping to recover from their illness Mm -hmm. um but anybody who perhaps isn't and has a palliative care need would be um somebody that we could look after um but but yes i think it's one of those things again where actually if there were the resources to to actively find all those people we'd be far busier than we could ever manage so it does have to become a a little bit more selective in terms of accessing services so to put a, a more kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> service user hat on um because of, there just aren't enough palliative care teams around to look after everyone who would fall under that umbrella but but yes we see it as very much planning preparing um and trying to take the fear out of um end of life mm. i think traditionally we've walked hand in hand with with cancer mm. and so a lot of people from the time they hear the cancer word are immediately going to thinking about their death and so they're a little bit more accustomed to thinking about potentially things like palliative care mm. but there are a lot of other illnesses out there that palliative care teams are involved with and do look after but because they don't have the same association mm. in the way that cancer does so quite accurately you mentioned heart failure and um, it's, it's definitely one of those those conditions that that we would have a an eye out for but somebody who's given the diagnosis of heart failure wouldn't necessarily think this is a life limiting condition mm. because it's just not got that same association in the way that the word mm. word cancer does mm. interestingly and you know you talked about palliative the word being quite heavy mm. there has actually been some research recently about um palliative care alongside um Or instead of kind of chemotherapy drugs in in some certain cancer patients, Mm. and actually it's been demonstrated that if you have good quality palliative care, either alongside um, treatment or even sometimes in instead of, um, actually people can have better outcomes. They can certainly have better quality life,
0: and even occasionally sometimes greater quantity. Um, Wow! Yeah, that's 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 almost unbelievable. So. Um, but actually I, I do I don't find it that unbelievable because it sounds similar to um, maybe and correct me if I'm wrong so is it to do do you think with that kind of focus on the uh, emotional and kind of mental well-being side of things Like because I know I was um, watching a TED talk about a study into the effect of compassion and social connections and they were comparing it to outcomes uh, for, for high blood pressure so patients that were treated with just kind of pharmaceutical treatments and others that were um I don't know exactly the ins and outs of the study but focused on compassion and social interactions and they found that social interaction and compassion was actually more effective than blood pressure drugs at reducing blood pressure <laughs> so do yeah. you is that how does the, how does that work in terms I of think in, in terms of palliative care it's probably
1: a bit of both if that makes sense so uh th- the study didn't pick out exactly what was causing the difference and um, we like to think that if you treat somebody's nausea well so they are able to eat more actually physically they're potentially going to have a little bit longer to live and they're going to feel a little bit more energetic mm. with it but i think probably what what is more important, and you're absolutely right, is that human contact—that somebody checking in, that mm-hmm. somebody making sure emotionally that they're in a good place or as, as good a place as they can be—has a has a um, a huge impact. Um, just just briefly taking away from palliative care, mm-hmm. um, I think I think there has been some suggestion that all of all of research is ever so slightly tainted by that effect. Because by the very nature of having somebody in a study or any kind of research, because they're having frequent contacts with people, wow. whereas outside of a study they wouldn't be, the very act of being part of a trial, being part of a study means that they have more attention, they have more personal mm. contact and so they have better outcomes than people not in a study. But how do you look at that if you can't include people in a study? It's a really it's a really tricky conundrum I and it all fits in with things like the placebo effect and all the rest mm. which are all very kind of legitimate explanations of of the the strength of someone's mind, mind and their emotional well-being mm.
0: yeah which obviously is the big focus of of this podcast is about kind of mental health and emotional well-being um and you know we'll come on to to that so in terms of um how palliative care is actually delivered because I know you've mentioned you've worked in hospitals you've worked in community teams and in hospices um so why would people oh, I guess obviously in a hospital the people are there because they have they've been admitted because yeah. they're very unwell or need some additional medical treatment what would be the difference between kind of going to a hospital hospice or having the palliative care in the community
1: okay so that's partly dependent on whereabouts in your journey you are so if you have a cancer diagnosis for example and we know that it's terminal but actually you've still got a chunk of living to do and you suddenly become acutely unwell with an infection absolutely going to hospital having that infection treated with iv antibiotics and coming home again is absolutely the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and what hospital palliative care teams can do in that instance is check up on you and make sure that, okay, the, the acute medicine team are looking after your infection, but those are the symptoms that go hand in hand sometimes and not always with having cancer, sometimes things like pain or sickness, that mm-hmm. we are the experts in that. So we can just make sure that those symptoms are still being managed appropriately whilst you're in hospital. Mm-hmm. And then when you're all well, you can go home and that's when the community team can take over and make sure that, again, those those common symptoms are being well managed at home. Similarly, speaking about the hospital team, if you went in with that infection and actually you weren't recovering well, it was looking like actually your body had had enough and it was saying, okay, it's time to withdraw these big gun treatments when people have had enough of being stabbed with needles and all the rest. The hospital team can help manage, again, those kind of symptoms that can be troublesome at the end of life and also because we're all part of one team they're very good at liaising with us at the hospital saying actually we've got this person here who the hospital team are are ready to take away the big hospital treatments they seem appropriate to come across for a hospice bed for you to take over looking after them in their last days weeks yeah Yeah. okay
0: and that's that's just reminded me of another question i think that we've discussed this before is um the that Deciding, really, when that might happen. And this, well, um, maybe maybe we haven't talked about it, but I have definitely thought about it. <laughs> um, that, uh, that sometimes maybe there's a pressure, maybe doctors feel a pressure or also patients might feel um, a pressure to not say that they want to stop treatment because mm. they can see it as giving up which i i don't think is you know it's not maybe a healthy way to say it because um you know it's not something like with cancer for example i know from following some people on instagram who share their kind of journey a lot of people don't really don't like this kind of battlefield terminology because it then you know you win or lose and that's kind of insinuating that you didn't fight hard enough exactly so um do you do you only get involved when people decide okay I'm gonna withdraw the big guns or are you there like helping them come to those sorts of decisions
1: um that's a good a good question because you're absolutely right when when that call is made is is varied and and similarly we hate the conversation that runs along the lines of you fight mm-hmm. it's the battle you're mm-hmm. going to lose you're going to win because mm-hmm. absolutely that whole you're not wanting it hard enough is absolutely rubbish mm. and in the end sometimes that fight can actually lead to people losing time and losing quality time mm. and losing you know precious things that they could have had if they hadn't pushed their body through another round of chemo or, mm. or whatever so it's it is very difficult and it is very, very personal. Um, in the in the hospital, for example, obviously there are hundreds of patients in the hospital and it wouldn't be appropriate for us to get involved with all of them. Mm. So we get referrals from the wards. So a lot of our job is about making sure the wards know that we are available. And so if they have a patient who they think would be appropriate for us to see, they know that we're there and they can contact us. Mm. Um, so, there is a certain extent of we need to be told about the patients before we can get involved. But but certainly when somebody is very poorly, we are very happy to get involved in those conversations around, do we want to keep going now? Do we not? Um, And it can be a mixed bag. And we don't always push for withdrawal. Sometimes we're there saying, no, this is worth treating because this is going to give you quality of life. Um, And we we do focus much more on, on quality rather than Quantity, but there are definitely times when when um, when we're there and wanting to have that conversation, and and we do like to to sit down with other medical team and patients and families, you know, COVID allowing not really so much <laughs> at the time, and um, and think about what what is the right choice treatment wise. So yeah, we we hopefully aren't called at the last minute. In fact, it's almost a little bugbear if we are called right at the last minute because yes we can help right at the last minute and we'd always want to help but actually there's so much more we could have done sooner um and interestingly there's a lot um there's a lot of work going on about getting palliative care involved sooner so things like um enhanced supportive care services so clinics that will run alongside um oncology clinics where Mm. they can people can be dipped in to try and take that fear of palliative care away so that people are seeing it much sooner in their journey trying to sort of relabel it because like Mm. you say the word comes with a a scarier connotation and and make it more about people understanding that what we're trying to do is make you feel well and and make you enjoy um, as much as you can and live I'm mumbling over my words but but to try and make that the the time that you have left the best that it can be rather than necessarily striving for the longest it can Mm. be Um, although sometimes it does go hand in hand and if we improve somebody's emotional well being um, actually they then (laughs) go on and actually live significantly longer
0: Mm. And what are the because obviously you um, as a doctor you will be prescribing medications and things but what is it in terms of the emotional well-being and what are your what do you actually do with patients to try and enhance their emotional well-being how does that work it's um it's very much being aware that you're part of a team
1: Mm -hmm. um so it's not just my job or the nurse's jobs we have um um other other parts of the team like the not just the medical team there's like the extra therapy team okay. and then there are kind of like chaplaincy volunteers and the like who come in and look after people's kind of spiritual well-being mm-hmm. so there's a whole team within the hospice but at the same time what I feel particularly as a doctor is that that yes people feel comfortable in that initial conversation about their physical symptoms like I've got pain But what I can sometimes do is then sit down and talk to them about, okay, physically your pain is here and we suspect that you have this pain because this bit of disease is Mm -hmm. pressing on here. But then sometimes you can bring the conversation around and say, okay, but equally we know that pain when you have it for a long time can really weigh heavy on you and can make you feel emotional, especially when there's so much other stuff going on. And it's a little bit of a, a window in to try and encourage people just to talk a little bit about how they're feeling um, mm. and acknowledging that physical symptoms aren't always just physical and that <laughs> physical symptoms don't always need a physical fix, mm. if that makes sense. And sometimes I can throw the kitchen sink of drugs at somebody and it won't make any difference. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes, actually, a really good chat with someone and they will feel a million times a million oh, times better. Yeah, um, that's amazing. And, you know, the hospice... I mean the one example I've given you so far was somebody coming to the hospice for like their last days, weeks of life but actually a big chunk of our patients coming into the hospice are coming in for symptom control so the hospice itself is not just about coming in to die and that's another kind of message we try and get out that people come into hospices for, um, for a spell for a week or two where we try and really get to grips with whatever symptoms might be troubling at the time so if they've got pain that's not being easily managed in the community or sickness symptoms then we mm. bring them into the hospice and we we try and do a little bit more intensive tinkering with medications but it often also gives people a time to come in and just take a breath <laughs> and just gives them the opportunity to step away from all of the the craziness that is life even Coming to the end of life, life, um, and enables them to just have a moment to just be a little bit quieter and a little bit kind of let's think about about where things are at, mm. and to try and give them space to to think about the future as well. You know, to think about preparing to to an extent. Like you, you're never going to push someone into thinking about their their imminent death, but but allowing people to talk about it if they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've had a lot of conversations with people. I think I might have gone off topic, Um, but anyway. Allowing people to say, you know, a lot of people are quite afraid about how they're going to die. But it's, it, you know, we're British. We don't ask the questions, or we assume that it's like you know you see on TV. It's mm-hmm. never, it's never like you see on TV. But that applies to everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, um, but just say to me, you know, would you would you like to talk about how people die and how it's likely to happen for you? Um, and a lot of times, people are then really keen. Say, yeah, yeah, please mm. tell me because I'm I'm frightened about that, but I'm also too. Scared to ask, and then I can describe. A, a, there's no such thing as a typical death either, but 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 particularly you know when we are involved at the hospice, um, there is a a, a kind of a, a recognisable sort of pattern to things, and mm. that our job, we try and reassure people. Our job is there to try and ensure that that passing is as comfortable and as peaceful and as symptom free as as can possibly be, and that we can try and. Make sure that if there are particular family members who want you want to be mm. there, or you know mm. the right music happening, or mm.
0: you know, I I had a uh, an interview with an end of life doula and a um, funeral director, and that that was something that they talked about as well. About you know, death is not what you see on TV, and yeah. actually, for most people, that is the only death that that you have seen. You know that mm. it's like um you know someone takes their last breath closes their eyes and that's it um i've but- never seen that no <laughs> that's what <laughs> so, that's what for they all said. my years working in end of life care i've, I've never seen that yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah that was that was really interesting and i think yeah you really hit the nail on the head because because it's it's just so british to to not go there um mm. But that, I think, adds additional fear, you know, because, like you say, you know, people just are too afraid to ask. Um, Do you you assist people to die at home if they want to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of people would would prefer to
1: die at home, um, and so we we do everything we can to make that happen. You can't easily manage to have 24-hour nursing care at home best will in the world and and families can do so much Um, so if somebody's needing lots of injectable medications it's going to be tricky to manage them at home but hopefully the 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 way things work at the hospice is if we can in any way stabilize symptoms enough to get someone home and get a package of care happening where there are nurses going in who can Mm. help um, families look after people at home and give medication as and when it need be um, absolutely. So we have we have sort of two two branches of of, of community care. They're sort of the the community care kind of hands on nurses who go out and um, provide physical care. So if somebody needs a bed bath or if somebody needs a little bit of medication giving, they can do those bits. Or um, but also we have our kind of specialist nurses who work alongside. GPs, for example, who can go out and, and visit people who perhaps aren't imminently dying, although they do also visit people who are imminently dying and just check over their medications, make sure that nothing's being missed. So like They're the extra arms, if you like reaching out to the community to make sure that medically speaking mm. um, symptoms are as well managed as can be. And they are often a great support to kind of families in talking them through how things are going to be. Mm. And, like preparing them for how things will will change and then to think about you know you mentioned funerals you know then to think about what you might need to think about next because it's amazing the number of people who haven't thought
0: about that bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah no it's yeah that was a, a really um enlightening Conversation they Yeah, reading the, the book that they've written about that was, yeah, things that I would never have considered, you know, never thought of before. I never planned a funeral. But, yeah, so I, I totally understand. I can imagine that. um And you mentioned, like, going back a bit, you mentioned how, like, when you were working as a GP, um, it was... You felt, like, quite stressed, and you were bringing that home and not sleeping and things, and actually... Now, in palliative care because you can have time with people and you can um, actually, yeah, give them more attention and have more meaningful kind of conversations rather than constantly looking at your watch. I imagine as a (laughs) GP, that's what you're doing. Um, Do you feel that working in this role, does that feel uh, better in terms of supporting your own mental health or I mean I can imagine it also has its challenges.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So without a
1: doubt I am a better, happier person for working in palliative care than I was when I was working in GP. Um but you do have to be mindful it's it is an emotionally charged kind of area to work in and you are dealing with people who are dealing with a lot themselves emotionally and there's a lot of sadness. Um it's one thing when you're caring for somebody who's elderly who's had a good life and they're dying peacefully with all their family around them that's kind of like the ideal, the thing that we'd all like, mm-hmm. and that definitely gives you a fabulous sense of this is lovely, how life should be, and wonderful um but I do also end up looking after people who are dying clearly far too young mm-hmm. um and with young families and the there is a, um, a privilege to working with, with um, patients like that and their families without doubt and there is a certain um, fulfilment I guess from being able to do that and from feeling like hopefully you're helping this person and their family with this awful awful time of life but yeah you definitely have your moments where you just do need to go and cry in the corner and mm-hmm. um, so as a, a, a team wherever I've worked we've always been very mindful of looking out for each other and sometimes if you need to go and have a cry in the corner then everybody's very happy for you to go and have a cry in the corner <laughs> and they will hug you if you want or leave you be if you want similarly and um, something called supervision is pretty important where mm-hmm. you you have kind of someone separate that you can meet with and talk through how you're getting on Emotionally and things that have been happening, which is a really important outlet. I find that um, At work, I'm able to be quite emotionally Stable for want of a better world and that I'm able to be that cushion. I hope for, mm-hmm. for people but at home, I'm a blubbering wreck. I mean, you put some cute dog on the telly and I'm, I'm gushing all over the place. So I think for me, there's a certain outlet in... in I, I, I still have my professional emotional well-being and then at home, I don't have to do that and I can cry and, and, and do all those things at home. I think it's really important to not try and hold it in Mm. i think in that british sense that we all try and hold it in and don't talk about it is absolutely the wrong the wrong thing to Mm. do Mm -hmm. um and yeah trying to have that (laughs) balance (laughs) it's a good title (laughs) (laughs) to have that balance of um the things that you love and enjoy so um yeah working in palliative care certainly makes you realize that you you can't take a single day for granted and things could change at any moment and so you do need to value things and enjoy people and times and not stress out about the future because who knows mm. um um and yeah not 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 what's the phrase don't sweat the small stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so so yeah I
1: think that's yeah
0: and your husband is also a doctor so i mean is that in some ways i can imagine that might be quite a good thing because or do you you can't talk about can you do you talk about work together or not so i think i i think and hope we have a fairly healthy
1: um attitude to this in that there is something really helpful about being a fellow kind of healthcare professional because it's a fairly unique set of circumstances that you end up working with um And there's an element of understanding without needing to explain alongside, forgive me, sometimes a slightly darker sense of humour, which also helps because um, working in a hospice, you'd be surprised at the amount of laughs we have. (laughs) We try very hard, Uh, but we do. We have a lot of fun at the hospice, and it's important for all of us that we do, and similarly at home. Um, So, yeah, Martin and I definitely... um, but we try and keep work conversation to a minimum, really, I think. I don't know if we do that entirely consciously, but it's like it's enough to know how your day's been, understand some of the stresses that may have occurred or when you're feeling a bit rubbish that it's been a crappy day. Mm. And then, right, let's go and <laughs> put the kids to bed. <laughs> mm. Let's open a <laughs> bottle of wine. Yeah, <laughs> and do <it> the <laughs> The equally
0: hard job of getting three children yeah. to bed. Yeah, yeah, it's a different challenge. <laughs> um, and let's talk a bit about cold water swimming. Cold water swimming. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I mean, I was going to say that it's not, you've just had a baby. You haven't just had a baby, but you have got a small baby. How old yeah, is he he's coming up. Coming up eight, coming eight months. At eight months eight, months. eight months now. I can't believe it. Yes. Um, but you started cold water swimming when he was quite young, quite little. Yeah, in a wetsuit swimming was December time, so that was when he was four months, I think. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, do you what do you, do you want to talk a bit about your experience or what you think that it's given you? <laughs> oh, I'm a huge fan of cold water swimming, so yeah. Since so the first time I went in in my wetsuit, and
1: it was really cold (laughs) but it was fabulous um yeah I I I love it it's it's definitely uh the joke in the household that the things I do to escape from my family (laughs) to get up very early in the morning and throw myself into the cold sea Um, but um but yeah it's just a, a quality bit of time away but just the i don't know how to explain it really but the, the that cold sensation around you whilst also being in the water being in these beautiful beaches and coves especially i have to say especially i do like kind of sunrise mm. there's something very peaceful about it and you come out having spent your time in the water kind of being able to move but feeling a bit tingly because your skin's going this is really cold. <laughs> Um, and trying to warm up afterwards and just feeling much more kind of aware of everything it's a bit it's a bit kind of mindfulness-esque I mm-hmm. guess except you're sort of forcing your body to be mindful <laughs> by going you will feel this because <laughs> it's really cold <laughs> um, but it does just take away from all the other silly things that can kind of flit around in your brain and distract you from just being okay and in the moment for want of another cheesy turn of phrase.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I remember... What was it I read or heard somewhere that cliches are, you know... They're called cliches because they are actually true. Yeah, for a reason. <laughs> for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I know like you mentioned the word balance, and um, thanks for that because obviously, <laughs> <laughs> Theme of the theme of the podcast. What else would you say that you try to do or um, like to do that helps to bring balance? You know, for you in terms of your well-being.
1: Yeah. That's uh, that's a very good question. What
0: do I try to do other than throw myself in the sea once a week? Um, well, because you're a busy mum of yeah, three, no, three no, small I'm, children. I'm, I'm, I'm being silly. <laughs> um,
1: I um, I think music is a really important thing for me. As mm-hmm. in, I I um, play the piano, and I actually hardly ever play the piano at the moment. But when I do sit down to play the piano, that's a, that's a delight. I often find if I'm getting antsy at home like we'll throw on some throw on some tunes <laughs> <laughs> probably not nursery rhymes of baby shark but you know even baby shark like do, uh, do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> but just for all of us it's just a great kind of well i say great but maybe not In baby small shark doses. but you know like something to just change the atmosphere and just i do quite like um putting something on that I can sing to because mm. I really like singing as well and I think that for me that's quite therapeutic I listen to a lot of very cheesy music that my husband absolutely hates but <laughs> like what kind of, well I love I love musicals
0: me too. so so I will happily
1: <laughs> sing along to many a musical um yeah What are your
0: favorite musicals
1: Well I'll, okay so so less less upbeat but les mises okay. just yeah. amazing so you're
0: you're quite a good singer then because that's oh. quite hard songs <laughs> yeah okay okay quite, quite hard, hard songs
1: to sing. to sing i i sing alone in my kitchen so i don't know that we could necessarily uh get quite much singing but you know I'm vicar's daughter i sang in the church choir so you know i, I was i was trained <laughs> no but um so yeah i i I mean I, I have a little bit of an obsession with listening to the music from Glee, I'm ashamed to say. I love Glee. But but I just love the way that they they sing the songs fairly in a musical style, mm-hmm. but again it's the stuff that my husband thinks is the worst thing in the world and he's on the cusp of divorcing <laughs> me whenever
0: I put them on. Um and but your husband also is musical. Do he play guitar? Or he, is he learning to play guitar? No,
1: so he he does play guitar. It was um I think, like you say, for both of us, we did all these things when we were younger, and then life got busy, and actually we realized that these kind of hobbies and things are very important for keeping you sane. And mm-hmm. um, so he has recently um refound his guitar, shall we say, and I'm listening to a lot of radiohead. Oh. I'm <laughs> which, not sure that's good for mental which health, isn't is it
0: Fanciest <laughs> of tunes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest.
1: Um, but, you know... <laughs> I
0: think Radiohead is often the go-to if you are feeling um, maybe a bit melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, practising the same phrase repeatedly. <laughs> Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, yeah. I quite like Adele as well, as in I do. And I think sometimes she's quite, like, mm-hmm.
0: that same kind of yeah. soul grinding. <laughs> yeah, I... I. Yeah, I listen and sing along as well. There you go. We have a lot in common, actually. We could start a band. Let's do it. Oh, thank you so much. Natalie, you've been amazing. And you're very welcome. And hopefully it wasn't too bad. No, 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 no. Nothing came out and at me. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Great. Well done. Thank you so much. You are very good And all
1: you...